Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining this seminar. It's an honor for me to be with you here, here at the UK and Ireland National Leadership or National Vineyard Gathering, and also to do this particular workshop or, or seminar, and then tomorrow morning to be with you in the main session, and then tomorrow afternoon presenting a second seminar as well. So perhaps some people are still joining, and, uh, but I think uh, for the sake of time, it's already uh, three minutes past half past, I will begin my seminar. But for those of you who have not read uh, the little blurb or bio uh, about me, my name's Alexander Fenter. I'm a vineyard pastor in South Africa, and I married my greatest claim to fame, as I like to say. I'm married to Gillian, English Gillian with a G, Jilly, and we have two um, adult children, one married, um, and, and another one, uh, our daughter in Australia. So family and love is the greatest in life and ministry and calling all follow after that. So that's just a little introduction to me and I'll share just a little more perhaps personally as we go through the seminar. So then let's, let's begin by, I wanna talk about the importance of Jesus and the kingdom and uh, the, the key text that I have used for all three of my inputs at this National Vineyard Gathering um, is, is the so-called Great Commission, Matthew 28, 16 to 20. So I'll just read the text for you. You obviously read with me. It's on your screen. So these are the last words that Matthew uses to close his biography, his good news of Jesus. And he puts these last words in Jesus's mouth, or he records them as Jesus having said this. And often when a person dies or goes or departs from us, the last words they say are in fact the most important words. And Matthew very clearly summarizes his entire biography of Jesus in this little closing story of his gospel. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always even to the very end of the age. So Jesus, here online, I want to acknowledge your kingship. I want to acknowledge your presence, that you are head of this church that is gathered online here today. And I bless everyone within reach of my voice and watching this PowerPoint. Jesus, pour out your Holy Spirit and please teach us. I pray, come Holy Spirit and give us the mind of Christ and the heart of Christ. In the name of Jesus, I pray, teach us and lead us. And Lord, what is not from you that comes through me, let it fall to the ground and die. But what is from you, 
Let it bear much fruit. In Jesus' name I pray. Thank you, Lord. So I want to just emphasize, to begin with, my story and our story, and then the, this story, the story of Jesus and the kingdom. And these three stories are all interwoven. And we as leaders, and especially obviously as the Vineyard Movement, I do believe, and I want to actually express a lot of what I'm saying in personal terms, in terms of my own convictions, my own observations, my own heart and desire and prayers and passion for, for Vineyard, the family to which I belong, the family of churches. And I believe that we need a fresh refocus and an updated understanding of Jesus of Nazareth and his, his, his mission and his message of the kingdom of God. And so out of that story that Matthew ends the gospel with, which we call the Great Commission, there are a few principles that I want to just emphasize in this seminar. And tomorrow morning in the main session, I do an overall picture of all five points that come out of the Great Commission. And then tomorrow in the seminar, I'll go deep into spiritual formation and mission, the second half of the Great Commission. But it really begins with when Jesus told them to go and meet him on a certain mountain. And that is a matter of faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. They heard Jesus. They believed him. Therefore, they obeyed him and went there. And when they saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Although Matthew's realism is that some doubted. So just for me, I want to emphasize a fresh vision of Jesus, seeing Jesus for who Jesus really is, the risen king who actually has conquered death and has risen again and is ascending to the right hand of the Father. The extent to which we see Jesus ever more clearly for who Jesus really is, that is the beginning of it, seeing Jesus. And my own life's passion is to study the historical Jesus. And by God's Holy Spirit, I am seeking to see Jesus ever more clearly and to fall in love with him, therefore, ever more dearly, and to follow him, therefore, ever more closely and passionately to pursue him. So for me, it's all about seeing Jesus, and we need a clearer vision of Jesus, the, the Jesus of history, Jesus of Nazareth, and the message that he preached, the kingdom. And our only, the only adequate human response is to worship, is to bow down and worship him, which is loving surrender to the risen king. And this is this, the birth of love comes from vision, and then it is born in worship, and it leads to mission. Because then we understand all authority. And, and Craig Keane is the only New Testament scholar, to my knowledge, who brings this out uh, more clearly than other scholars, is that when Jesus appeared to the disciples, and I'm imagining held up his hands and said, all authority in the heavens and on the earth has been given to me. It is a direct literal fulfillment 
of Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man text, where the Son of Man in Aramaic simply means a human being. And this vision of Daniel of the, the four kingdoms that rise and fall in the last one, being the most brutal of all the four kingdoms under which the people of God suffer. And the vision that Daniel has in chapter 7 is of the Son of Man, one like a human being who suffers with and for the people of God under the fourth beast, comes out of suffering, ascends on a cloud into the courtroom of heaven where the Ancient of Days sits and all the thrones are set and the books are open. The court, the courtroom of heaven. And to this one, the Son of Man is given all authority in the heavens and on the earth, all the kingdom, all the power, all the glory, which brings an end to the earthly kingdoms and is the inauguration of the kingdom of God in and through the Son of Man. And so Son of Man is used over 80 times in the gospel. Jesus used it of himself. So this vision of the kingdom as God's all authority in and through the, the Son of Man who suffered and rose again and ascended. And there's a human being, a human body in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And he gives us that authority. And the Son of Man embodies the new humanity, the new redeemed Israel who receives the kingdom. And Daniel chapter 7 very clearly says that, that the Son of Man represents the renewed Israel, the saints of God, who receive the kingdom and then go. And it's not a matter of taking over the nations. It's a matter of going and make disciples of Jesus in all the nations. Making apprentices of Jesus of Nazareth among people of all types, everywhere, in all nations, until the end of this age. And we do it, make apprentices of Jesus, not of ourselves. And we do it in the passion, the authority of Jesus, and we do it in the empowering presence of Jesus, who is his Holy Spirit. So for me, my own story began when I, before I met Wimber, I was doing my academic theological studies in the late 1970s, when I was an assemblies, a young Assemblies of God pastor, and I had to read George Aldrin Ladd as a textbook in my uh, systematic theology studies. And then I met Wimber and understood far better through him, his understanding of Ladd and how that the paradigm of the kingdom actually defines how we do church. And of course, Vineyard started off and was birthed within this rediscovery of Jesus and the kingdom through George Aldrin Ladd, who popularized it in American evangelicalism from the German scholars like Kummel, um, Oscar Kuhlmann, Hermann Rudebos, etc. And really, the way Wimber understood how we must practice the theology of the kingdom, this rediscovery of the kingdom, led to power encounter, intimacy of worship, church planting, and church renewal. And those, I guess, are the salient features of how it's worked its way out within Vineyard. And we really understood the mystery of the kingdom that Jesus taught, that the kingdom of God is a mystery, which is this eschatological tension between the kingdom has already come in Jesus and has been inaugurated and he's enacting it, but it is not yet fully here. It has come in principle and power, 
but not in fullness and finality. And we await its, its fullness and finality when Jesus returns. And we've upheld this tension in the vineyard of the already and the not yet. But the way it's been taught and the way it's been understood um, um, in a lot of our churches, in my observation, is that actually it's led to unintended consequences. And so there has been swings within the vineyard in the last decade and even longer, post Wimber, after Wimber passed away, more towards kingdom now type theologies and praxis, charismatic Pentecostal type uh, uh, theology and exercise of, of the spirit, and also kingdom not yet type conservatism and pulling back and being very careful. And of course, easily using it to explain away people are explain away why people are not healed oh, he's not healed because the kingdom has not yet come and then we just back off as opposed to persisting and pushing through and exercising faith without presumption but the perseverance of the kingdom in the tension of the already and the not yet trusting god for breakthrough invoking kingdom come in the name of Jesus, without presuming kingdom now type triumphalism. So for me, through my eyes, where we are at as vineyard, um, and I believe internationally, is there is a, there are serious questions of where are we at and why, where are we going as vineyard and what is needed in the steps going forward. So for what it's worth, here is my um, contribution. My humble contribution. <laughs> I believe we must stay in the story of the kingdom, but the updated, renewed version of the kingdom through the new generation of scholars. And now I know I'm talking a lot to the converted, probably. Uh, N.T. Wright and James Dunn and the guys live there in England, great Anglican scholars. But Craig Keener in the USA, J.P. Meyer, a, a Catholic New Testament scholar in the USA, Graham Twelve Trews. It with the vineyard um, in the USA. There are a lot of scholars that have got into historical Jesus research in the third quest. And through the um, rediscovery of Jesus in his context as the eschatological prophet who proved to be the Mashiach through his resurrection of the dead, like N.T. Wright's tome on the resurrection. He's, he called it the resurrection of the Son of God. Very, very intentionally, because Jesus was vindicated as the Son of God, the Mashiach, through his resurrection. And so, if you're not aware, Derek Morphew has just published his third um, book in the trilogy, in his trilogy on the kingdom. It's called The Kingdom Reformation, and I'm holding it up here but you probably can't see it in the small picture at the bottom of your screen uh, of my face. But uh, here is Derek Morphew's The Reformation of the Kingdom, Rediscover Jesus, Review Everything. And Derek has been a gift to us in Vineyard as a remarkable scholar, and uh, it completes his trilogy of breakthrough, the theology of the kingdom, demonstrating the kingdom, and this kingdom reformation. And it's his most academic book but i encourage you to get it because it really updates us on jesus research and updates kingdom theology 
in terms of the big picture and the cutting edge of where we're at in terms of kingdom understanding. But for me, dear friends, and this is where I want to share personally, we really need to experience this and stay in this story of Jesus and the kingdom in an updated, renewed version. We, we need that at a heart level, first and foremost, at a, a spiritual passion renewal. And I must tell you, when I began, I don't know, probably 15 years ago or so, um, even a bit more than that, delved into N.T. Wright and James Dunn and then got into historical Jesus studies. I've read all five of Meyer's volumes on the historical Jesus. He's the most exhaustive scholar, in my opinion, perhaps of all, on the, on the historical Jesus. I tell you something. I've been born again, again. I have undergone over the past 15 years, a rediscovery of Jesus that has captivated my heart with a deeper passion and love for him. And uh, in my book, Doing Spirituality, I share a quote from Father Pedro Arupe, who was the leader of the Jesuits, a remarkable quote. He says, there is nothing more practical than finding God, that is, than falling in love with him in a quite absolute and final way. What you are in love with, what seizes your imagination, will affect everything. It will decide what will get you out of bed in the morning, what you will do with your evenings, and how you will spend your weekends. What you read, who you know, and what breaks your heart, and what amazes you with joy and gratitude. So therefore, fall in love with Jesus and stay in love with Jesus and it will change everything. It will determine everything in your life. Those are the words of Father Pedro Arupe. So I believe that at a heart level, the heart of the vineyard, we need to see Jesus ever more clearly for who he really is and pursue the historical Jesus and get to know him. That young 30-year-old rabbi, from Nazareth was one truly remarkable human being. And the more I know him in his context, the more I realize how astonishing his understanding of Torah and the prophets was, his deep and profound sense of destiny, his capacity to give his way in love of God and the kingdom and to give his life away. So that's the first level. And for me, it comes down to this issue of renewing our first love. As Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, you've done everything well. You, you test the apostles, you check this out, your doctrine's good, everything's just fantastic. But I've got one thing against you. You've lost your first love, that passion, that fire with which you burned from the beginning in the early 1980s when Lonnie Frisbee and John Wimber and hundreds and thousands of young people went out on the streets gossiping the gospel of Jesus and the kingdom and healing the sick and driving out demons and baptizing literally hundreds of, of people. That passion of your first love. And of course, our first love to which we need to return or rekindle is the love that was there at first. It's God's love for us in Jesus of Nazareth. And so that's the first level. The, the, the theological formation level, I believe, especially senior pastors need to really dig in for the long haul 
and cut your teeth and read good biblical theology on the historical Jesus and the updated understanding of kingdom theology. And of course, how that translates into the church missional praxis level. All leaders in all of our churches ought to be updated in the understanding of the kingdom and praxis of the kingdom and not be hooked back in the backwaters, as it were, of George Aldrin Ladd and, and the paradigm of the early days. We are built on that. That was the foundation. But it's gone further, and we need to press in and push on and grow outwards in ever-increasing circles. So what I want to do in the remaining time, then, is just give you the big picture of the kingdom. And uh, for those of you who were in some of my uh, conferences or seminars um, two years ago when I was in the UK, uh, I apologize for going over some of the material or the, the, uh, the PowerPoints that I used then. But at the same time, I make no apology because for me, what I'm going to share now is the essence of the big picture, the updated big picture of the kingdom that we really need to get and we really need to teach. So this PowerPoint and my PowerPoint in the seminar tomorrow will be available to all of you. And I've also attached a paper. I've asked them to send out a paper that I've written um, on this about the Great Commission, which is for all of you. So the big picture of the kingdom, which is the Jesus worldview, the worldview in which and out of which Jesus lived and led and ministered. The Hebrew understanding is also is always that from creation we live in this age, but history will come to an end. There is the age to come. And it is always in that sense dualistic, this age and the age to come. And Hebrew understanding is very clear. This age, from creation, there is the fall of human beings into sin, which gave power to evil, and we use, we live in this present evil age. Paul's particular phrase in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, he says that Jesus has rescued us out of this present evil age. But we do live in a present evil age. And so the Old Testament promise arose that one day the future age will come and bring an end to this evil age. And by the way, this basic diagram is in all my books that I've written, all the doing books is in Derek Morpheus' books, and I'm sure you guys have used it, but this is just a refresher. What comes after this is the further updated stuff. So the future age, the hope of the Old Testament promise is that the future age will come and bring an end to this evil age. But the mystery of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the future age, is that it broke into history through Jesus Christ in his mission and his message of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, according to Matthew, because Matthew wrote to Jewish readers, so he uses heaven. And of course, the kingdom comes in Jesus's ministry, where he teaches and enacts the kingdom in his death on the cross, in his resurrection, and in the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And it's what we call the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophet promise. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament promises by inaugurating the kingdom. And there is Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. And the kingdom comes with increasing power 
increasing breakthrough until his will is done on earth as it is in heaven at the consummation when Jesus returns. So this basic paradigm which George Aldrin Laird gave us needs to be expanded and updated for, uh, for all of us to keep impassioned in the journey and teaching it to our people. So for me, Isaiah's IMAX movie is really important. Uh, the historical Jesus scholars like J.P. Meyer, they have traced Jesus's quotes or echoing. Uh, you know, the rabbi is taught by what they call remez, is by echoing texts every now and then in their sentences and teachings from the Hebrew Bible. And the listeners who understood the Hebrew Bible would pick up these echoes. And he, his argument is Jesus quoted the Psalms the most, secondly, Isaiah, and thirdly, Daniel. And if we take Daniel as an example, the son of man phrase, Jesus in all four gospels, if you add up all the references, it's over 80, just over 80 times. If you just take the son of man phrases, then Jesus actually quotes um, Daniel <laughs> the most, and then the Psalms and Isaiah. But from Isaiah's perspective, 700 years before Christ, he, by the Holy Spirit, saw a picture of the coming kingdom and Jesus was steeped in the prophets, steeped in the Psalms. He memorized all 150 Psalms by heart. All Orthodox Jews pray and memorize the 150 Psalms by heart. So it's, it's the fiber. Isaiah, Daniel, the Psalms was the very fiber of Jesus' thinking. It formed his worldview. He deliberately, as a young 30-year-old rabbi from Nazareth, believed he was the one of whom the prophet spoke. He believed he would fulfill the destiny of all the prophetic scriptures of Israel. And he deliberately lived into it. Unbelievably courageous. Unbelievably full of faith and clarity of thought and mind. And yet such strength of love and conviction of the heart. So in summarizing Isaiah's big picture, I believe Jesus understood if you summarize Isaiah, it looks like this. Isaiah's repeated message is Yahweh will come and rescue you from exile and redeem you and save you, O Israel. And through you, Israel will save the Goyim, all the scattered nations of the Tower of Babel. But when Yahweh comes, he will come as king. God will become king in his Davidic Messiah. And he will come in the rivers of the Spirit. In Isaiah, the waters is always the power of the Holy Spirit. The Isaiah is full of the waters will break out in the desert. The deserts will blossom. Continual repetition of the metaphor of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And when Yahweh comes, it is the day of the Lord. That repeated phrase. And the most common word in Isaiah is Yeshua. Salvation. When that day comes, salvation will come to Israel and through Israel to all the nations of the earth. And salvation, 22 times it's used in Isaiah, if my memory serves me correctly, is not just spiritual to save my soul, but it is completely holistic in Hebrew understanding of God's created reality. It is cosmic, not just personal and spiritual. So salvation is described as the forgiveness of sins, as healing of our bodies, the blind eyes, We'll see the deaf will hear, 
the dumb will speak, the lame will leap for joy. It is liberation, political and spiritual liberation from oppression. It is justice for all, wherever people have suffered indignity, whether it's racial or sexist attitudes or classism, God's kingdom, when salvation comes, will bring socio-economic political justice for all. Shalom, God's holistic renewal of uh, the ecology, the Garden of Eden, he will rule and reign, and it includes the resurrection of our bodies. I mean, it's remarkable how Isaiah saw the resurrection, where in Isaiah 26, the shroud of death will be lifted. He speaks of life beyond death. Um, and then, of course, the big party of God, where the most aged best wine will be brought out on the mountain of the Lord and the feast, the mother of all parties that God throws. So this description of holistic salvation, it comes in and through the king, the Davidic king who actually suffers uh, Israel's sin as the suffering servant. And the four servant songs that describe God's suffering servant, I believe Jesus took to himself and identified himself as the suffering servant as much as he identified himself as the son of man. And Daniel chapter 7, the son of man texts Jesus's chosen self-identity, son of man and suffering servant. Both of them had to do with suffering. The son of man suffered with the saints, for the saints, under the fourth empire, the Roman Empire, and then was vindicated through resurrection and ascended on a cloud into heaven, interrupted on <laughs> the, the mountain in Matthew, where he spoke to his disciples and said, Isaiah chapter 7 is literally being fulfilled now um, through my ascension into the heavens, where I receive all the kingdom and I give you the kingdom. So all of the salvation, Produces a new people of both Jews and Gentiles, male and female, rich and poor, black and white, uh, Tory and Labour, <laughs> Irish and English, <laughs> Republican and Democrat. <laughs> In South Africa, black and white and rich and poor. One new people reconciled and being the reconciling community of the kingdom to bring reconciliation to all humanity. A new Jerusalem it produces, new heavens and new earth, and also the final judgment and the removal and the end of all evil. So this is the big picture. I believe that Jesus imbibed and deliberately lived into and worked from. This has four irreducible uh, dimensions of mission that define how we do church as kingdom people. And this is the end of the talk, and then we will have our Q&A. So if I take the big picture of the kingdom of Isaiah, and you read it in and through how Jesus lived and taught and what he did and where he went, he deliberately was fulfilling the scriptures. And you reduce it down to the essence. Uh, I call it the four irreducible essential dimensions of the mission of the kingdom. And Hebrews says, we who have tasted the powers of the coming age. The kingdom always comes with power encounter in healing, signs and wonders and miracles. The kingdom leads from power encounter and the greatest power encounter is being born again with eternal life. That starts personal transformation, sanctification towards Christ likeness. 
spirituality. That overflows and leads to social transformation, social action, social engagement in terms of justice, ministry to the poor, ecological awareness, working for the renewal of the earth in anticipation of the new earth that, that Jesus will renew when, when he returns. And lastly, always, whenever the kingdom is spoken of, it has a world vision in mind, the world mission of the eschaton. The eschaton is the end. Jesus is the first and the last, the end, the beginning and the end. And we are called and destined to have a world vision to take the kingdom to the ends of the earth. So this is the last slide, just in a different way of the same picture for clarity. The powers of the coming age start a new creation in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is going. The new has come, and that leads to the renewal of all things in the age to come, which already we, we now, in principle, are enacting and living. And here are the four dimensions of kingdom mission. Power encounter, and I've written deliberately into that with the book Doing Healing. A, a, a kingdom theological paradigm and praxis of the whole world of prophecy, prophetic words, spiritual um, exercising gifts of the Spirit, signs, wonders, and miracles. And the vineyard must keep on the cutting edge of pushing into the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, signs and wonders. The second one is personal transformation. Again, I've written very intentionally into this, doing spirituality, a whole theology and praxis of personal spiritual formation and transformation towards Christ-likeness. That discipleship, apprenticeship to, to Jesus is essential. That defines how we do church. That then overflows into social transformation. And I've written doing reconciliation, a theology and praxis of justice and reconciliation from a kingdom theology. And then lastly, world missions, which essentially is about church planting. John Wimble always used to say, the best way to do world missions is to plant churches. And the best way to plant churches is to evangelize. And if you want to evangelize, plant a church. And if you want to plant a church, evangelize. So my book, Doing Church, which was the first book that I wrote to record our philosophy of ministry as a textbook for how we do church as kingdom praxis is used as a manual to plant churches, how to have a, um, a five-year plan. So friends, my last comment, the problem of selective obedience. And let me tell you, we don't have the luxury of choosing one of these four. We don't have the luxury of specializing in power encounter and forgetting about personal sanctification and holiness and purity of heart and behavior and life. We don't have the luxury of pursuing world missions and forgetting about social transformation and just planting churches without a social conscience to engage in our, in our socio-political, economic, ecological issues of the day. Kingdom people engage in what's going on in our society for the king's sake, not for a political party's sake or a particular ideology's sake but to be a model of the future in the present 
to be witness to the present of what it's going to be when, when the king comes. So don't get into selective obedience. The kingdom is a package deal, and local church should be defined by all four. We do all four at the same time. Thank you so much. So I am going to stop sharing, and then I am going to get into the chat and answer the questions. Um, so Michael Munson has made a comment on my books. Thank you, Michael. And uh, Nigel says, yeah, thank you. And where does the, rap the rapture and tribulation fit into the timeline? So Steve, to keep it very brief, I personally believe that we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air when he returns and that will happen at the end of the tribulation. I do not believe in a mid-tribulation rapture or a pre-tribulation rapture. And the idea of a seven-year period or a three-and-a-half-year period will be taken either before one of those two comes out of a, th a theology called dispensationalism and a particular interpretation of Daniel 9, which kingdom theology basically um, overthrows. So we're going right through to the end. And there's one second coming of Jesus. And when he comes, we will be caught up to meet him in the air. Um, so the word parousia, the Greek word, the coming of the Lord, is that uh, when Caesar or official dignitaries of the empire went to any city or town, the leaders within the town or city, when they saw the king coming, they went out of the city and met them outside and had like a welcoming party and escorted the dignitary back into the city and then received the government that they brought. That is the concept of parousia. We are caught up to meet him in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4, and we escort him down. We have a welcome party and then he sets up his kingdom and he rules and reigns. I hope that's helped. Helps you, Steve. Pete says, you've talked about moving from our roots to an updated view of the kingdom. In updating our view of the kingdom, how do we retain our legacy roots? Pete, good question. What, how do we retain it? We do power encounter. We lay hands on anything that moves. And if it doesn't move, lay hands on it to get it to move, because then it's dead. But to press into power encounter, to press into personal discipleship, and spiritual formation to press into social engagement and Wimber was very big on ministry to the poor and community engagement for the transformation of communities and we press into church planting evangelism and world missions there's nothing different it's just more intensified a bigger picture and more clarified so we don't lose our roots we're building on our roots but some people I find are caught in a time warp and want to always go back to the old, the good old days. No, we're in the great new days and the greater days ahead of us. And we must push in with great faith and perseverance. Corin Edwards says, thank you. Mike Day says, thank you. Um, I have lost Alexander on the video. Okay. I hope I'm still here, guys. What sort of advice would you give someone that feels burnt out with trying to evangelize others? So Sterling Hall, I would say, 
I would say, you get on your knees, I would get on my knees, and I would just cry out to Jesus. And I would say, Jesus, I'm tired. I feel burnt out. Just show me, help me. I want to tell people about you because you, Jesus, are beautiful. You, Jesus, are the meaning of life. You are the beginning and the end of all things. Help me, Jesus, to tell others about you. And don't worry about results. Don't be outcomes focused. That's the technology of evangelism, outcomes focused evangelism. <laughs> Just gossip the gospel. You know, tell people about your first love, your greatest passion, Jesus. And I tell you, they will feel the passion and it'll, it'll start changing them. So Jesus will renew you with his energy and his love if you are willing to be available to be his instrument of evangelism. And I bless you, Sterling, with the refreshing that you don't indeed burn out, but you operate in the love of Jesus. So, you know, Dallas Willard said, Sterling, we burn out when we are drawing on energies in our natural human body and personality beyond drawing on our spiritual resources in the kingdom. When you draw on the spirit of Jesus and you work from rest, you don't burn out because you're drawing from an eternal unending reservoir of the love of Jesus, as opposed to the stress and the strain and the push and pull to make things happen, to perform. And that's generally the energy of our own lives and our own body. Um, Ailey, thank you for your comment. And Chris Reese, you have presented the kingdom of God as an order of time. How do you feel about empty rights and the concept of a fourth dimension, which is here now, sometimes apparent as in a revealing or revelation? So, Chris, I am not entirely clear on what you're asking. And I know a little bit about this in terms of empty rights reference, but it is a big subject. And if you don't mind, I'm actually not going to go into it, except to say that um, Hebraic understanding of time is not circular, as in Greek understanding, and neither is it, is it, is it the ever-present now. Hebraic understanding is linear time. It has a beginning, space-time has a beginning in creation, and it has a an end point at the second coming, and then eternity is zoe ionios. The New Testament word is the eternal ages to come. It's age upon age, time and eternity without end. So in that sense, the, I'm working from the Hebraic worldview of linear time with kairos moments of catalytic change within chronos time. So maybe I'll leave it there if you don't mind, Chris. If we were face-to-face, -face, I would delve deeper into dialogue. <laughs> Malcolm says, is there an intern program on this? The Wimber, what, what, what Wimber used to have. Um, so Malcolm, I'm not sure if you're asking, there are vineyard training in UK and Ireland has courses on the kingdom, introductory level courses, demonstrating the kingdom. If you're talking about an actual intern program, then I think you must contact Michael Munson and the Vineyard Training and see where perhaps it is like 
hands-on coaching as well as theological training for a kingdom worldview and a kingdom life and praxis. Um, then it's more in the local church as in a program of interns that's coaching as well as um, theological input. The rapture, and this is Jesse, the rapture and tribulation have become weaponized by dispensationalism. Jesse, I hear your comment, and uh, I understand what you're saying. And yes, it has been, I think, up to a point weaponized. But you know, if we simply understand the kingdom, and by the way, I, I have personally six teachings explaining the kingdom theology. And the last one, I talk about the end, the, the end of the end, what happens when Jesus comes. And in my understanding of scripture, as we work it out, I think it is fairly clear from the New Testament what we can expect in broad strokes. So if we teach and understand the kingdom, I think it really does answer a lot of these confusions that dispensationalism and pre-trib and rapture and all of that uh, present to the evangelical world. Uh, Patty Stone, the last 10 minutes, my internet has kept dropping. Uh, uh, I think, Patty, if you speak to the, the staff team, they can send you the link afterwards. I think all the recordings of all the seminars will, will be up on the website, I'm assuming, or Vineyard, so you will be able to watch it. Brian says, how can we embark on social transformation in an unequal society? A fifth of the UK is in poverty, it's yet still remain obedient and prayerful for the government who God has placed into power. <laughs> Brian, that's a big question, important question. And you're talking to a white South African born and raised in South Africa under apartheid. And in South Africa, 54% of the population are living in poverty. And then beyond, up beyond that are relative levels up to the rich. So we have tremendous our nation, besides Brazil, is the most unequal nation in the world economically in terms of the rich and the poor. So there are massive challenges here. So our relationship with government, God puts, puts God has ordained governmental powers and he raises up governments and puts down governments. We must pray for them, but the role of the church is to be the conscience of, of government. In the coming of Jesus and the inauguration of the kingdom, Jesus brought a separation between church and state. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, pay taxes, honor and respect the powers in place, but give to God what is God's. And the community of the kingdom who lives under God's government first and foremost, and are citizens of God's kingdom first and foremost, and only secondly live under the Tory government, Boris Johnson, <laughs> and live as citizens of, of Britain or the UK. But the community of the kingdom is the conscience of society and the conscience of government. We bless and support the government when they do what is consistent with kingdom ethics. We challenge the government when they do what goes against kingdom ethics. So policies that are unjust towards people and damage human dignity 
and cause social pain must be prophesied against and if necessary resisted through civil disobedience and even peaceful non-violent public protest but our greatest weapon is prayer as 1 timothy chapter 2 verse 1 paul teaches timothy as the pastor of the church at ephesus he says first of all the highest priority in this church i want you to pray and pray for kings and your leaders that they may that you may live in a peaceably in society under good governance so there's a lot to say on the church state relationship brian and my book doing reconciliation i have a lot of teaching on this from a kingdom understanding i hope that that helps you but we need to push into social engagement at all levels for the sake of people who really are suffering and struggling and are in pain in various ways um so patty says the recordings will be available arthur good says good stuff thanks alexander hey arthur <laughs> and sarah i don't know if sarah's here god bless you guys love you paul mcdonald i think you said it's not a matter of taking over the nations how does that compare with the dominion theology we see in north american churches paul you heard me correctly and it was a very intentional comment of mine in case anyone out there had ears to hear what i was saying or what hopefully the spirit was saying through me i don't believe in dominion theology as taught in the um, conservative evangelicals around the seven mountains teaching and similar such the theologically it's called reconstructionism to take over nations and basically we want a christian president we christianize the arts we christianize business we christianize everything and then we have a christian government and we have a christian nation and god will bless us and god will bless the nation and everything will be fine and the kingdom will come it's a form of post-millennialism called reconstructionism and popularly known in different words and dominion theology is one of them jesus never told us go take over the nations he said go and be salt and light to the nations by making the apprentices of jesus among the nations of people of all kinds black people white people yellow people red people brown people old people young people so that's a whole different understanding and mandate of the kingdom as opposed to christianizing nations and taking over government and imposing christian morality on the majority jesus never intended us to use political power to impose christian morality on society so big subject the book doing reconciliation i talked to that thanks paul daniel says thank you so much i also feel like i've had a second conversation into king convert conversation or conversion into kingdom theology in the past few years you mentioned the danger of leaning too much into kingdom now paradigm could you please expand on this and how we can avoid it so yeah daniel kingdom now is the triumphalist type mindset and mentality 
of legislating in the heavens, pulling down the powers, declaring, naming, claiming, taking over, bringing into subjection, and basically um, we, we are God's army that's just going to beat up the devil and all wrongdoing and take over. It's, it, it really is a presumptuous triumphalism which is not the spirit of Jesus. The, the kingdom now emphasis has different forms and expressions in the church, in different parts of the church. I'm giving a, 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 a kind of stereotypical, almost a generalized, almost prejudicial view of a form of kingdom now theology that we've got to be very careful of. The opposite uh, of kingdom not yet, which is defeatism, a sense of just accept what comes along and just give in, etc. That too we must equally be, be uh, aware of. So um, maybe enough said on that. Michael Day is saying, thank you so much. I love this. Refreshing in my experience. People find it quite hard to understand the kingdom paradigm as it is broader and more detailed view of the scriptural narrative than the sin, judgment, personal redemption view. How do we dis disciple Christians within and into the kingdom worldview? So, Michael, you've I think you've hit the jackpot. You've put your finger on the core issue. How do we disciple our people in our churches into a Jesus worldview, a kingdom worldview? And for me, it's discipling them in the four missional dimensions of the, of the kingdom, these four irreducible dimensions. Discipling every follower of Jesus into being people of the Spirit who, who live and operate through power encounter to lay hands on anything that moves, to be so sensitive. We disciple people in spiritual formation of purity of character and heart so that there is no scandals uh, <laughs> as there are in the world today in terms of Christian leaders who live a double life and have such broken character. We disciple people into political thinking, economic thinking. How do we think biblically about what's going on politically? How do we think from a kingdom perspective, kingdom economics, about how we respond to the national economic situation? It's a matter of discipling our people and ecologically. So people who poo-poo the ecological crisis that we're in, uh, again, are just in complete denial. So enough said. Discipleship is the heart of the mandate of Je the kingdom mandate of Jesus. Go and make disciples, apprentices, and disciple them in these four dimensions of the kingdom. Uh, so, Rachel G., are we in the beginning of the tribulation? Rachel, from the, the New Testament, the time Jesus ascended into heaven, Paul and the first followers of Jesus spoke about the tribulation because they were in it under Nero and were persecuted by the Roman Caesars and were, um, they, were, they were martyrs in the thousands. And so the great tribulation has been upon the earth in its various forms all through the years. Globally, it's intensifying. I don't believe globally we're in that last end three and a half year period 
of the great tribulation, which will just be the final full intensification of all that history has been through. Uh, that, I think, will come. But we certainly are in profoundly challenging times and the world is unraveling. Um, so I hope that that helps you. And Hannah says, it's kind of be hard celebrating a headache healed over Zoom when so many are suffering in the pandemic. Any thoughts on how we can help people navigate the tension? Wow, Hannah. <laughs> you know, Hannah, God loves to do even the smallest thing for us and the greatest thing for us. And why people, some people are not healed from COVID and die from it, even personal loved ones, when we've prayed and we've fasted and we've spoken the word and they're not healed, and yet other people are healed of headaches over Zoom. To be honest, I don't know. It's a mystery. All I do is <laughs> I just weep and I say, God, please break through and have mercy and heal. But I'm not here to engineer a result, and I don't pray for people with outcomes-based prayer. I pray for people trusting God, and I, I, I trust Him for the breakthrough of the kingdom and the result. So the tension is not easy to uphold, Hannah. I sympathize with what you are saying. So, Graham, it's now 30, uh, 30 minutes past uh, the hour, so we have to bring this to a close. Graham Guthrie says, it feels practically that spiritual formation, character transformation, contemplative prayer fasting, is something separate on kingdom theology, power healing. Any thoughts on how to integrate the two in the church? Well, the short answer, Graham, if you can see my book, <laughs> I don't want to be guilty of wrongly advertising my book, but I'm honestly and humbly saying I've really addressed this in detail and tried to wrestle with it. Here is a vineyard kingdom theology of character transformation towards Christ's likeness, which is fully integrated into the local church in terms of the practice of discipleship that is equal to and works with signs, wonders, and miracles. So to keep it short, that's my answer. David says, are there any updates that you would want to make to your earlier books to reflect your updated view of Jesus and the kingdom? David, excellent question. If I rewrote or re reissued a new uh, revised version of doing church, I think I would then update the section on the kingdom. But outside of that, I'm fairly happy with the other three books and what I've said. Um, John Lee says, how do you unpack the kingdom in your local church? You are, John, any senior pastor or elder or leader within the local church that's part of the preaching teaching team, they need to work out, the team needs to work out the diet for the church for the year. I always worked in three to six months cycles and sometimes a year plan. And we always made sure every year we went through in one way or another laying out the kingdom basics because new people come into the church every year and they need to have the kingdom basics. But we don't only teach it through Sunday morning time, but we also teach new people through 
a basic course in the kingdom, the, the churches that I've pastored over the years. So, um, yeah. And again, we can follow that up if people want to uh, uh, find out materials of teaching a course on the kingdom. I'm happy to share on that. Um, Ari Ponti says he needs to read Derek Morphew's new book. Ari, from Finland. Hey, my dear friend, God bless you. And yes, Derek's book is available on Amazon. Uh, chapter one, it is part one, Ari, and part four of the book are the two more accessible, easier reads. Part two and three are quite technical and academic. In fact, it's, it, it is the thickest, longest, most scholarly book that Derek Morphy has written. But, but if you can get your way through the middle part, uh, it's excellent. But the first and the last part are the real uh, stuff that helps us, I think. Michael Munson has given his email address. If you'd love to talk about discipleship and training, he heads up Vineyard Training. And uh, some people are thanking me. Thanks, Heather. Sterling says, why does Christianity have different denominations? Oh, Sterling. <laughs> it's because the human heart is deceitful. And we pursue selfish ambition. We divide over doctrine. And we want our own way, etc., etc. If we, if we were all fully kingdom now, totally redeemed, and all completely Christ-like, there would be only one people of God and no denominations. But you know, Sterling, even among Judaism, when Jesus was around, there were seven branches of Judaism, which actually were the equivalent of our denominations. The Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, the Qumran um, and community, etc. And Jesus's community of the kingdom was a messianic movement that would have been seen in his day as another type of Judaism, like another denomination. So it's a big discussion, Sterling, but I believe that God is uniting his church and Jesus' prayer that we will all be one, that will be answered one day. Julian Barnard says, thank you. Malcolm says, amen. Anya says, amen. Salt and light, not take over. <laughs> Steve Green says, how do we balance our theology of the kingdom and avoid overemphasizing and missing it being a response to 1 Samuel 8 and to 2 Samuel 7? Okay, so Steve, wanting to have a king, a physical king. So you know, Steve, if you're interested, contact Michael Munson or, or go onto my website, alexanderfenter.com, and I've got two blog post that I've written, I've written recently from Samuel about when Israel wanted a physical king, basically rejecting God's invisible kingship and government. And there I address some of your question. So alexanderfender.com on my blogs, look for two posts from Samuel on Ichabod, and the other is um, God's invisible government versus visible kingship. In regard to historical Jesus research, how do you get your teeth into the dense critical scholarship whilst at the same time ensuring you fall more in love with Jesus? <laughs> so 
Michael, um, if one is not um, practiced in reading scholarly works, I would recommend more, more simpler, accessible stuff like N.T. Wright, Simply Jesus. There's a wonderful work by um, Gerald O'Collins, a Catholic New Testament scholar who's written a book on the historical Jesus, the portrait of Jesus. He writes about the beauty of Jesus and he presents Jesus around this whole idea of a theology of beauty, how beautiful Jesus was and is, and uh, helps us to fall in love with Jesus. So there are more accessible books, more at a popular level, on the historical Jesus. James Dunn has a book at a very popular level on the historical Jesus, which I can't think of the, the, the title right now. Um, but they do help one to get a picture of Jesus that bypasses all the technical um, scholarly jargon and stuff, but gives you a vision, a real vision where you start seeing Jesus. And you know, guys, Tim, and Michael, anyone left here, I would love to teach on the historical Jesus, a series of teachings at a more accessible level, but to present the heart and the passion of that young rabbi from Nazareth by which we fall in love with him. So Jesus, thank you for the seminar. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for all these folk who've been in, online. Bless them and we keep us, Lord, until we gather again in the next meeting. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everyone, and God bless.